at the brook are in full Christmas mode. I uh, just want to thank the, the people who, who decorated. Uh, let's give them a hand clap. It's such a great job. They know who they are. I just want to say thank you. And my, my, my name is Jeremy. If you don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here at the brook. Uh, thank you. Hi. Uh, sharing God's word today with you. Uh, we've been going through the book of, of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, um, for about a year or so now. And uh, we're going to complete that book, but we're going to take a pause from that actual uh, series at this moment to do a Christmas series in the spirit of the holiday. Okay, so for four weeks, we're going to be switching uh, things up. Um, and the, the name of this series is called He Has Come. So if you look at that Christmas list, it's a prayer list that we put together. Um, you'll see the title of it. It says, He Has Come. And I fill that out, uh, be in prayer for, for people that you know, be in prayer for uh, yourself. Um, with that, um, I, I just want to give you a brief overview of what we're going to be doing these four weeks. Uh, so for the, for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at um, four Old Testament prophecies, okay? In the Old Testament, there was these things called prophecies or predictions of things that would come to pass in human history. And most of the time, they, they deal with um, what God would do in human history, okay? And God would speak um, through people his word. Okay, and now uh, we have um, the prophetic word in, in our hands called the Bible. And uh, a lot of the Old Testament prophecies have actually come to pass. So we're going to be looking at um, prophecies from the Old Testament. Old Testament predictions about Jesus, uh, the one who came into the, in, into the world to save the world. And uh, these are the things that we want to walk away with. Uh, we want to walk away with the fact that God became a human. Is that is that me? Am I, or is it a mic? Am I, okay. Okay. Is it me? Okay. All right. So, so we're going to see that God became a human. We're going to see that God was born of a virgin. Um, we're going to see that God, the ruler of the world, entered a broken world. And throughout this series, we're going to see that God became flesh to ultimately save the world. And as you consider uh, Christmas season, which means um, that Christ has come, um, consider this, that Jesus, being God himself, and we'll unpack that a little today, being God himself came into a broken world. He came into a time period in history um, in a society called Rome. He came into the Roman world. And Roman success at that time was similar to what we would uh, see as American success. In Roman times, uh, we saw how success meant um, uh, being of a higher uh, status in a caste system. It meant that uh, you had money, that you had citizenship, that you had family. All those things came together in this Roman world and said, this is what it means to be successful. And Jesus um, came completely defying that status quo. So we're going to look at that a bit throughout this series and throughout um, our text today. Now, as you, as you think about Christmas, you think about celebration, right? Usually Christmas is a joyous time. Uh, many of you may have gone through some turbulent times, and 
And I, I know not for all of us, it's, it's, it's a joyous time. Or it's, it's a struggle to, to be joyful. But for the most part in our culture, we prize Christmas as a joyous time. But sometimes in Christmas, some conflicts come up, right? Some family drama, some um, just issues about um, where you're at in life. It just reminds you about a lot of things. And when I think about conflict in Christmas, I think about this one time. It was like the Thanksgiving before Christmas last year, okay? Now, I called my mom in Florida. I'm originally from Florida. And I said, Mom, I'm going to cook the rice this, this year for Thanksgiving. Now, the reason why I said this was because I wanted to cook the rice for Christmas. You see how that works? I was auditioning. So I was so excited, flew down to Florida, bought all the ingredients. I mean, it was, it was on point. I got a recipe from somebody here at the church who just hooked me up, and um, I began cooking. Now, as I was cooking, this huge pot of arrojicandules, like huge, um, you know, I hear my mom saying, like, don't worry about it. My son got it. She's, like, talking to people, telling them, like, don't worry about the rice. Jeremy got it. It's a huge pot. So people just really trusted me at that time. <laughs> and, you know, rice is a huge deal in, in Latino dinners, especially Thanksgiving. Long story short, I completely blew it. I mean, the rice was all hard. The rice was, I mean, just completely just, like, it just, it was flavorless. You know, it had everything but flavor. You ever had rice like that? And it was my first time doing it on my own. So it caused conflict. And the conflict was that everybody trusted me. I made this huge pot of rice, and all we had was protein and carbs, like bread. And we didn't have rice. We didn't have that carb. And that was a big deal. It caused conflict. And people told me, bro, don't ever... Don't ever, please, my family's super straightforward. Don't ever make the rice, and definitely don't make it for Christmas. Killed my Christmas joy. Now, as we think about conflict in Christmas, um, you'll see that Christmas has its origins in conflict. Christmas has its conflict in a time uh, that is not so peaceful. That's where it finds its birth. And, and today we're going to look at five things about Christmas. Five things about Christmas. And then we're going to look at how those five things zero in on the point of one of the points of Christmas. So we're going to look at five subpoints. We're going to support this main point that's going to show us a lot about the origins of Christmas and why we celebrate, one of the reasons why we celebrate. And the first thing that you must see is that Christmas, the coming of Jesus, was birthed in the context of war. Christmas was birthed in the context of great hostility. And if you'll join me in Genesis chapter 3, this is the first book of the Bible, the pew Bible in front of you, it's, it's page 2, or page 5, excuse me. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then I want you to take um, a, a, a bookmark, some sort of bookmark, and go to page 886. 
and the pew Bible in front of you, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Okay? So bookmark both of those. We're going to be look at, we're looking at both of these texts. We're going to look at the prophecy in the Old Testament, the prediction of Jesus in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the fulfillment in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. First, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, page 3, in the Pew Bible in front of you, verse 15. This is the judgment of God on Satan. The judgment of God on Satan. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, this is God talking. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now skip over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. You read with me, and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see that this concept that Christmas was birthed in the context of war finds its roots in deceit and disobedience. Deceit and disobedience is what led to a declaration of war from God himself. Now, if we, if we look at this text, the surrounding text around it, you'll see a couple of things. You have to understand the narrative. God created Adam and Eve. And God creating Adam and Eve, he gave them all that they needed. He gave them himself, and then he gave them each other. He gave them a relationship with him and a relationship with one another. But then he also gave them a purpose. He gave them the responsibility to cultivate or to develop the earth and to care for it. Sound familiar? So God created Adam and Eve, who were our descendants, who we were ultimately birthed from, the responsibility to, to, to care for the earth, to, to, to be able to, to have relationship with him. But if you look at the text a little further, you see that Satan came into play. Satan, in the Garden of Eden, where they were stationed at, he, he used a serpent. He used a, a snake. And he used this snake to completely deceive Adam and Eve from what God had promised them. And see, God promised them that they would flourish. God promised them that they would have purpose on one condition. And the condition is that they would trust and obey him. And the test of their obedience and their trust was that they not eat of one tree. It was just one tree in the Garden of Eden. And it was called the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, possessed the ability to open their eyes to, to knowing what evil was and what evil is. And here, if you look at the surrounding text again, you'll see that they ate of the tree. They were deceived into believing what Satan told them. And Satan told them that if they ate of the tree, they surely would not die. 
And God said that the consequence of them eating of that tree, of disobeying him, of not trusting him for their purpose here on earth, their relationship with him would be that they would die. And Satan said, that's not what would happen. So God, he looks for them, not in the sense that he didn't know where they were at, but rather he questions them. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam being the leader, being the head of the family at that time, being the ultimate representative of the entire human race. The reason why you and I are here today, God gives an account to him patiently saying, where are you? Why are you hiding? Because he was trying to cover up the fact that he disobeyed God. And he knew it. He knew it. What a tragedy. What we see is that God disciplined Adam and Eve. And ultimately, in the text today, in our first text, we see that God promises. God says some good news, but also declares war on Satan. He gives bad news to Satan, but declares good news to us. But nevertheless, he declares good news. And if you look at verses 15 or verse 15, uh, you'll see that God declared a war that he promised to win. Look at, look at the text with me in that first portion. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That word enmity, you can underline that word. That word means hostility. It means strife. It means beef. It means I got a problem with you. It means that I have some hostility that I'm going to react violently to you. That's what enmity means. So here he says, I'm going to put some hostility, some beef between you and the woman, meaning between you and her offspring. What that means is that he would put hostility, he would declare war, Satan and all the representatives of evil after him and he would declare war with or the opposing army to him would be one representative one representative an offspring a seed who would fight against Satan and all the representatives of evil thereafter you with me so on the one hand we have Satan and the representatives of evil. On the other hand, we have the seed, a seed, that would come from Adam and Eve that would fight against Satan and all the representatives of evil. And this seed would win this war. You continue to read. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is an illustration in ancient times uh, they, they would use illustrations centering around snakes. Snakes were seen as a deadly um, animal, no matter what, because they didn't know which ones were poisonous. So here he talks about the nature of the war, but he guarantees the win. Look at the text. He says at the end of verse 15, he says, he shall bruise your head. That means that he's going to give you a headshot that's going to kill you, that's going to destroy you. He's talking to Satan. And then he says, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So there he says, he's going to give you a headshot that's going to destroy you, but at the same time, you're also going to give him some type of shot that's going to injure him. And if you were reading this text in ancient times, you'd probably be a little um, anxious to know, man, what, what would be the nature of these mortal blows? And the next thing we see is that Christmas was foreshadowed throughout history. So if we look at this text, we see that the stage was set for Christmas, but it took some time before it could be fulfilled. So the first thing that we want to look at is that Christmas was birthed in the context of war. And then the second thing we want to see is that Christmas was foreshadowed, or the coming of Jesus was foreshadowed throughout human history, before Jesus came. So so God would use different figures. He would use different people to push back evil. He would use humans. He would use people he created in order to push back any representation of evil, any darkness in the world. And I want to give you three examples of who he used. He used a man named Abraham. Abraham is called the father of faith. Uh, God promised him that he would have many children, many children. And he told them, leave your, your, your land of Oz. I want you to, or Uz. I want you to leave that land. I want you to believe me that I'm going to create a nation out of you and your barren wife. Because they were super old at that time. And Abraham had great faith and actually had the audacity to believe God, not only that he would have one children, but th- one child, but that he would have an entire nation spring out of him. Great faith. He was a hundred some odd years old when that happened. Imagine that. Imagine getting the news on that. Then you look at Moses. Moses was a deliverer uh, after Abraham, some, some years after Abraham. And he was used by God to deliver God's people, the nation that came out of Abraham in order to deliver them from slavery from the Egyptians. They were under bondage after some time. They came under the rule of an oppressive ruler in Pharaoh. And Moses was the one used by God to deliver God's people from this nation. And then we see David, who was a king. David was a king known as God's after God's own heart. He was a man who ruled as if God ruled through him. So here we see three examples of God using mere men to bring about his purposes and ultimately bring back evil. But this is the thing, George, that you need to understand that causes great mystery to our ancient ancestors, perhaps when they read this text, is that none of them possessed the ability to overcome without God's power. So Abraham wouldn't have the faith to believe apart from God planting the seed of faith. Moses could not deliver God's people without the power of God being evident in his life, without God's display of power in the nation. David could not move or push back evil through the kingdom of God, through the nation of Israel, apart from God's sovereign leading. And this is the reason why. Because Abraham was a dude who lied. At one point, he even lied about his wife being his wife and said that she was his sister when he was in a foreign land. 
Moses was a man who he saw the oppression of the nation of Israel being under slavery to Egypt. And Moses murdered a man because he saw those are my people. They're enslaved. They're being treated harshly. So I'm going to kill this dude. And he ends up killing an Egyptian guard who was mistreating one of his own. And then you look at David. If you look at the Bible, he's known as a man after God's own heart, but a man who took another man, by the way, his soldier's wife. He had relations with her. He slept with her out of a marital context. And he put this man named Uriah, this woman's wife, on the front lines of the war that he was supposed to be fighting, by the way, so that he could die to cover up all his sin. So here we see God highlighting himself through broken people, but nevertheless highlighting, pushing back evil through broken people. So we see that our ancient ancestors may have read Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 15, and may have said, and may have said, man, I wonder, is it Abraham? Is it Moses who would finally destroy Satan? Is it, is it, is it um, David that would ultimately destroy um, Israel or destroy Satan? Well, we see that they weren't, although God did use them and did preserve his people through them, but they were mu- merely humans used by God. Now, if you look back at verse 15, the third thing that you see, so so far we've seen that Christmas was birthed out of the context of war, that Christmas was foreshadowed throughout history. Next, we see in this text that Christmas ensured, assured Satan's ultimate destruction. So we see highlights throughout biblical history, but here we see that God ensured hey, Satan will be completely obliterated in all forces of evil. We got some evil in our world, right? We've all experienced some, some, some turbulent times, right? Here, we can have a certainty that God said that he would destroy Satan, the father of all evil, and put it all away. Look at verse 15. He says, of the seed, he says um, that, the, the seed of Adam would destroy, would destroy. Now, our ancient ancestors may have not known this, but the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world, that's what that means, the seed that was to come from Adam and Eve was going to die. You know why? Because the disobedience of Adam and Eve And their descendants thereafter, which is you and me, led to the consequence of death. Bodily death and also death in the sense where we'd be completely disconnected from God forever. And here we see that this prophecy is saying that the bruising of the heel, and we know this from history, would come through Christ's death. Now turn with me to to John chapter 1, verse 14. I'm going somewhere with this. I promise you. 
So we've established that there's war. We established that there's been some foreshadowing to the one to come. And then we also see that God assures us that the, the evil one will be destroyed. So you could imagine that the people who are reading this were perhaps like, God, when? When? Sometimes it seemed that evil was winning. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1 of, of John. It says, in the word, everybody say word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Say glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Here we see that God promised that he would win. And here he raises up the man that would completely destroy evil. But he wasn't just any old man. See, this is a reference to the Son of God. In some of your Bibles, it might say the one and only in that verse that came from the Father. Uh, that term son is a reference to a term called the Son of God. The Son of God in ancient times was a reference to a representative, somebody who would completely destroy evil, somebody who was God, who was God himself, that would ultimately reveal God to the earth. Okay, but they would see that this person would be a man, but he was. But here we see that this man wasn't just any old man; he was God Himself, self-existent. He didn't need anybody. God Himself needed no one. He needed no type of love from anybody. He chose to come on earth to show love. Here we see that the Son of God came on earth. And he became a man, and his name was Yeshua. Yeshua Hamashiach. That was his Hebrew name. I like saying that. Jesus in Spanish. Not Jesus, you know, your, your cousin. Jesus in Spanish, where your cousin got his name. Jesus in English. The Son of God, being God himself, became flesh, and his name was Yeshua, the Savior of the world. That's what the text says. And the text calls him the word. The word is a reference to a, a, a concept called um, the expressed thoughts. So when they said the word was a divinely expressed thoughts. When you, when you say words, you're expressing your thoughts, right? When you see the word capitalized, what this meant is these are the expressed thoughts of God. So here there's a reference to this man, Yeshua, being the son of God, but yet being the divinely expressed thoughts of God, being the embodiment of God himself. So the Christmas story, the narrative tells us that God himself became a man, entered human history to redeem the world. If you look at any religion in the world, apart from Christianity, and there's no God that interacts in that way. No God. No God at all. And Yeshua came to the Roman world. I told you what the Roman, Roman world was like. I told you that success for the Roman world was wrapped up in family, citizenship, money, status, flyness. And Jesus, Yeshua, came uh, to the Roman world as a Jew, as a poor man, single, childless, homeless at one point in his ministry. 
defying the status quo. But nevertheless, he was the word. He was the word. So here we see that there's a war that's been going on. We see that it's been Christmas has been foreshadowed in this war, that Christ will come. We've seen that, that the, the curse of sin has ultimately been, been delivered to all of us. And we see that Christmas revealed that the Son of God would come on earth. The next thing we have to see is that Christmas revealed that God's glory, that revealed God's glory to a cursed world. Okay? As we look at the text... We see that it says, in the word that is the son of God, that is Yeshua, he became flesh and he dwelt among us, meaning that he lived among us. And then it says, we have seen his glory. What is glory? God in and of himself is magnified. God in and of himself is self-existence. God in and of himself is love. God in and of himself is all-knowing. God in and of himself is all-power. He doesn't need creation to prove that. He just is that. What glory is, is when God makes all of that known in a bag of chips to humanity. So glory is the display of God's flyness. Glory is the display of God's all-knowingness, his essence, who he is through a man, through the word, Jesus, Yeshua, to a broken and fallen world. Christmas reveals God's glory to a cursed humanity, though, because Yeshua revealed God's glory over Satan and sin's doom. See, all of the characteristics of God's glory is the antithesis to those who represent evil. God's glory shines because there's great darkness. God is light because there is darkness. And the reason why the world is dark, my friend, is because all of us are sinful. All of us have inherited Adam's curse. Because Adam disobeyed, the rest of the human race disobeyed. We all have a natural inclination to sin. We, I, I often say, you don't have to teach a kid how to sin. He just disobeys. She just disobeys. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish, right? Like, you know those times you wake up in the morning and you're just like in a bad mood and you just want to like cut somebody off on, in traffic? Yeah, that's you. That's your sinful disposition to disobey God. We inherited sin. And what, what the Bible teaches us is those who inherited sin have been cursed, completely cursed from birth, separated from God. We're on the losing team. And God came on earth, became a man to save us from the curse. And to understand how sin spread, I was talking to Abel yesterday. And as I was talking to him, we were talking about electrical work. I know nothing about electrical work. I'm not, I'm not very handy. And he was telling me about how he was doing some electrical in, in, in a friend's house this, this week. And he said that a certain aspect of the house didn't have power. Okay? And the reason why was because 
it was connected to what they call an electrical pin. I know I'm talking like, like super basic because I really didn't know. Like I told Ava, like, run that back like three times. Every house that's constructed has an electrical plant panel. This electrical panel controls, it's the brain for all of the power in the house. And in this panel, there's some electrical uh, breakers. There's different breakers. I'm sure you've seen them before. If, if one of those goes out, it infects certain aspects of the entire house. So if one of those are corrupted, then the house doesn't have power the way that it should. The whole system connected to that breaker is completely corrupted. It's lost. It don't work. It's, it's finito. And that's the way sin is. Adam and Eve, they were corrupted because they disobeyed God deliberately. They didn't trust God at his word. That he gave them all that they needed and gave them a purpose. They didn't trust him. They disobeyed him because they were deceived. Although that's not an excuse. And we too, because we're under their lineage, we've been corrupted too. All of us. All of us have been corrupted by sin. And Yeshua reveals that there's no one like him because he was God in the flesh. And although he revealed God's glory to a broken world, the last thing we see is that Christmas offers the gift of God's glory. So all of God's flyness, all of God's all of God's essence, God's holiness, his set-apartness from evil and wickedness, they offered to sinful people living in a broken world, living in a dark world, is a cake. All of us experience that because we aren't just broken. Our hearts are not just dark. All of us disobey God. We're all guilty. We've all disobeyed God. And I know in Christmas, there's a lot of good things that are happening. I'm not knocking it. I love feeding the, the, the people who don't have something to eat. I love, I love um, going out there and, and just sharing um, just, just about, you know, the joyous times, telling Christmas stories in, in public parks and, and, and all that. I, I love all of that. There's nothing wrong with that. Reaching the community that way is great. I'll be the first one to say we need to do it. But the world does the same thing. But their motivation is not the same. Because there's no, we can't do enough good. You can't make enough money. You can't do enough good to please God. You can't do it on your own. Not even Moses, who delivered an entire nation, could please God on his own. He needed God's power. He needed God's glory, and here we see that Christmas offers, the coming of Jesus offers us the gift of God's glory. Look at the text in verse 14. It says, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Son from the Father, that is the Son of God, God himself becoming flesh. And he says, full of grace and truth. I like, I like this. I like this. Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus. He revealed God's glory with grace and truth. That's the way he displayed God's glory. The way he put God on display 
The way he put his being on display is through grace and through truth. He embodied grace and he embodied truth. Now see, Jesus offered grace through his death because we've all been corrupted. And as you, as you read the narrative of Jesus, you see that he was the seed who would be bruised on the heel. That illustration was an illustration to his crucifixion. Jesus came on earth to die. That was his mission. To die for people who wanted nothing to do with him. People like me. People like you. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die. To take the punishment of sin, which is death, on his behalf. And it's grace because we don't deserve it. And then he says... He came full of grace and what? Say it louder. He came full of truth. What did Adam and Eve fall prey to? Lies. Lies. And Jesus embodied the truth with what he said, and Jesus embodied grace with what he did. As we think about illustration of the breaker talking to Abel I asked him so so what do you have to do to fix this issue what do you have to do and he said you have to completely replace it you have to replace that breaker you have to replace it completely because that thing has been corrupted it has to be made new you might even have to get a new panel on that because that one won't work anymore. See, Adam couldn't save us. Abraham couldn't save us fully. Moses couldn't save us fully. David couldn't save us fully. Your money cannot save you fully. Your status here on, in, in this nation will not save you fully. Whatever you do won't save you fully from the wrath of God that you and I deserve for sinning and disobeying his good and perfect command for our lives. So God sent Jesus to replace the panel of our hearts because it's been corrupted. He completely does away with it. He trashes it. He puts it in the dumpster. He throws it away and he says, Jesus, you ready? In eternity, Jesus is like, yeah, I got you. He goes on earth and he dies for sinners and begins a new humanity. He replaces the panel of our hearts. And the way that we become part of this new humanity is by accepting the grace that he gives and believing what his son did. The only way to be on the right side of history. The winning team of human history is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's it. And it's our faith in Christ, that new humanity, that compels us to do good things. So we do good things. That's going to be great. We're going to do that during Christmas. But if it's not out of the motivation of our faith in Christ and what he did, then it still doesn't please God. It ultimately won't make you good. But here... The new humanity, when we accept the truth, when we believe the truth, excuse me, and when we accept his grace, embrace his grace, he makes us new. Not because we could do anything for him, 
but sin because he loves it. And he did it through Yeshua. So what's the point in all of this? We've seen that Christmas was birthed in the context of war. We've seen that Christmas was foreshadowed throughout history. We've seen that Christmas ensured, uh, assured Satan's ultimate destruction through Yeshua. And Christmas revealed God's glory to a cursed humanity. And ultimately, Christmas offers the gift of God's glory. But what do I want to say with all of this? What does that tell us about God coming himself on earth to save us? And it's this. That Christmas brought ultimate victory to human history. Christmas brought ultimate destruction to evil. Christmas brought ultimate destruction to all workers of iniquity. Christmas brought ultimate uh, destruction to those who disobeyed God. The coming of our Savior offers you and me the opportunity to be on God's team, to be part of God's army forevermore. And one day, Jesus won't come with grace and truth. Jesus is coming back to judge all of humanity. He's going to put death away. He's going to put evil away. He's going to put disobedience away. He's going to put all the times that people have hurt us away. He's going to put all weeping away. He's going to put it all, of, all of it away. He's going to judge it, and he's going to punish it. And you're on that side of history if you have not you have not believed in what Jesus did, if you have not entrusted your life to Jesus, you will face that judgment. And that is the reason why we sing hallelujah. That's why we say thank you, God. That's why we worship him for all that he is. We thank Jesus because he gave us what we didn't deserve. Recently, I watched a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you, okay? I'm not spoiling it. I'm going to give you a trailer, though, okay? I'm going to give you a little trailer. You should watch it after this. is an amazing movie. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge takes place in the context of, of, of war. It was World War II. In World War II, there was a man named Desmond Doss. Uh, this man enlisted into the army. Check this out. This is crazy. And this is a true story. He enlisted into the army, literally, with a vow not to use a weapon. He wanted to be a medic, okay? He just wanted to save people, but in the process, he didn't want to shoot nobody, okay? And Desmond Doss, and this is a true story again, he, he goes into war in this cliff called Hacksaw Ridge. And in, this, in, in the movie, you see how, man, they're just like battling people, dying all over him. This man has no type of weapon in and of himself at all. People even like offering him, like, bro, take this rifle. He's like, nah, I'm good. Like, he's like saving people, dodging bullets, dodging grenades. You know, he's getting hurt. But nevertheless, he's, he's saving wounded people. He's saving broken soldiers physically. And in one scene in the movie, this, I don't want to spoil it for you. That's not a spoil. That's just history so far. But in one scene in the movie, after the, the, the first battle that he, he's in, um, right before they go into the second battle in, 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 
in, on Hacksaw Ridge there in Japan, as the American army are fighting the Japanese, uh, there's, there's a scene where, where, where the commander and the soldiers are ready to go back on, on, on Hacksaw Ridge to pretty much finish the deal, pretty much like, like, like win this battle. And, and before the commander gives the okay to go to war and say, like, yo, let's charge, in, in the movie scene, there's a part where he's, like, the, the commander is, is talking to, to, to the special ops dude, like, back in, in the, in the um, I don't even know what they call it. Maybe JJ can help me out. But, like, like the, the place where basically you get the chain of command. So he's waiting for the call to basically say, like, hey, y'all ready? Are you guys going to go into war? And the man tells him, he's like, not yet, not yet, not yet. This man, Desmond Doss, he's, we're, we're waiting for him. He's praying right now. He's standing in the gap. And like in the movie, like the whole army's like ready to go. And like everybody's like, all right, we're good with him. He's done praying. And then they go into war. And he saved about 75 people with no type of weapon at all. It's an amazing story. He won a medal, all types of medals uh, for his, his courageous act. As I think about that, I think about the fact that the army in that battle were all looking to this person to save them. They even waited for him to pray, to stand in the gap for them. And even further, and more importantly, Jesus did something far more greater than that. Far more greater than that heroic act. Jesus stood in the gap for sinners who were broken completely. He was there in the trenches. He lived a perfect life in a dark world. Think about that. He was deceived. He was mocked. He was deceived by one of his best friends into death. Not deceived. Nobody could lie. He was ultimately turned over into death by one of his best friends. And he did it for you and me, and he didn't do it with a weapon. He didn't do it with a sword. He did it with grace and truth. suffered violently and he fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 and today you could be part of this ripple you could be part of the family of God I invite you to be part of the family of God simply by putting your faith in Jesus let's pray Father God I just thank you for um, just your word God I thank you for coming on earth and uh, dying for us, Lord, raising from uh, the grave. Lord, I thank you on earth for being uh, the descendant, Lord, who uh, would come and save us from your wrath, from God the Father's wrath. Lord, I thank you uh, that you sent your son, Lord, to die for us, God, and that you are true to your promises, God. And I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who hasn't believed, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. God, I also pray for uh, my brothers and sisters who might be discouraged, might be in a pattern of sin. God, I pray that they would understand that Jesus has won the victory once and for all. God, and that they too can be renewed in their faith. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Church family, we're going to sing a song as we sing this song, if uh, you need prayer, if you don't know Jesus and you want to know him, we'd love to share about um, who he is.